Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. One hundred years ago, Canada was involved in the most important event on the globe, the Versailles Peace Conference. It had started on January 18, 1919, and Sir Robert Borden, Canada's Prime Minister, was present. To talk about Canada in this historic summit, I'm pleased to welcome Norman Helmer, Professor of History and International Relations at Carleton University. He's the author of many books, including O.D. Skelton, A Portrait of Canadian Ambition, published by University of Toronto Press, and co-author of Canada's International Policies, Agendas, Alternatives, and Politics, published by Oxford University Press. His most recent book is an edited collection of essays entitled Justin Trudeau and Canadian Foreign Policy, and it's part of the Great Canada Among Nations series. We reach Professor Helmer in Ottawa. Norman Helmer, welcome to the mic. Hello, Patrice, and I have your fine book, Embattled Nation, in front of me, and I'm enjoying it very much. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Sir Robert Borden, Canada's Prime Minister, as I said, had been in Europe for almost two months by the time the Versailles Conference started, and he'd been negotiating hard already. To remind our listeners, he'd been Prime Minister since 1919 and was one of the few world leaders to have survived the war. He was there at the beginning and he was still in position at the end of November 1918. How would you assess his performance as a war leader? I'd, I'd assess it on, on two levels, uh, one of which relates very much to your book. Um, he was disciplined, he was pragmatic, he was determined, he was awkward in his own way, but he got the job done. He was a fine war leader, set out from the beginning a set of war aims, unconditional surrender of Germany, and he put into place a way of thinking about the war, which was not that it was just Britain's war, it was also Canada's war. We would take it on as a, as a responsibility of ours. On the second level, I think he's a failure, because in order to do the things that he set out to do at the beginning of the war, to, to win the war, above all else, he imposed conscription in 1917 in a particularly ruthless way. So I like to say that the First World War made Canada in the sense that Canadians uh, formed a big national army and fought great battles, and we were leaders in the war's final assault. We played a part in decision-making and the rest. But we also ruthlessly imposed conscription, severely dividing French from English Canadians which was a way of suggesting to Francophones and other non-British Canadians that something outside the country mattered more to English Canada than the country itself. Now, how did his views on the British Empire change over those years? We Canada, of course, entered the First World War uh, without equivocation in August of 1914. Did his views change over those four years? He was a determined imperialist in that crazy way that Canadians defined imperialism. Uh, not that uh, Canadian imperialists wanted to step out into the world and be uh, controllers of territory or controllers of people, but rather that he was committed to the empire. Committed to the empire is the expression of all that was good in the world and many of the things that were good about Canada. And that was always the context in which he did everything. It's not so much his ideas about the empire changed, it's that his ideas about Canada changed, because as time went on, and like so many Canadians, he watched the British not always do it quite in the way that Canadians might like it done, 
he became more and more Canadian, like his confrères, and in becoming more Canadian, he became more determined to make the country autonomous, wanted the country to acquire its own independence. Mm. So in January of 1919, he's a part of the British delegation, right? Yes. And what's his, do we know, what is his state of mind? It's interesting that his diary ends uh, as he's about to enter into uh, the the Versailles Conference. Um, I'll I'll tell again to our listeners, the, the Robert Borden diary is available online, and it goes cold starting in January of 1919. We don't really know what his state of mind. Can you guess, Norman? What, what, what's, what's his thinking at that point? Let's go back a little bit. He he comes back to England at the end of, of uh, 1918. In fact, he's in the boat on, on the way to uh, England when the armistice is declared. And for the next couple of months in in London, he fights for the right to have Canada represented not just in the British Empire delegation, but also in its own right. Mm-hmm. And he manages to get the British to concede this. And the British then, once they and the Canadians get to Paris in early 1919, um, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of, of, of Britain, manages to get President Woodrow Wilson of the United States to concede that Canada will have its own seat at the peace conference. This is so important to Borden because we must be recognized for the sacrifice that we have that we have undergone. Sixty plus thousand Canadians have died, and many, many tens of thousands of others have been wounded or or disfigured in some awful way. Mm-hmm. The Canadian war contribution is immense, and, and Borden insists on behalf of the Canadian people and on behalf of his government that Canada is recognized. Now, he gets to Paris, and he's immediately happy because he finds that uh, Paris is rather a nicer place to be than London, and he's in a better hotel. Uh, but he's also exhausted. He's also aware that back home, uh, his government is in some difficulty. The country is is rolled by uh, all kinds of uh, of difficulties: the aftermath of conscription, the erosion of civil liberties, workers' anger simmering and boiling boiling over in strikes across the country. Some of the soldiers uh, are returning to home well, and they're quite indeed, disappointed. Yeah, yeah, and some of the soldiers are on both sides mm-hmm. uh, during the Winnipeg general strike in 1919. So um, he's exhausted. And he's not, um, he's not the true player uh, among the leaders of the various uh, British, what they were called at the time, dominions, mm-hmm. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. The big players are Smuts of South Africa and Billy Hughes of Australia. Uh, Borden seems pretty satisfied with what he has, and he's not, he's not one of the, the, the big players at Paris. Now tell me about uh, Borden and, and uh, President Wilson. You, you mentioned President Wilson. Um, he, of course, arrived in Paris as a conquering hero, the United States having entered the war in 1917, three years after Canada had. Um, do we know anything about his relationship with President Wilson? Was there anything there? It's obvious that President Wilson did not have any particular inclination to support Canada. No, President Woodrow Wilson had to be told by Prime Minister Lloyd George that Canada had lost more men on the battlefield than the United States. 
and uh, that was that was the crucial that was the crucial fact that swayed Wilson. Wilson and Borden didn't have much of a relationship, and and indeed uh, Woodrow Wilson had to go home uh, for a month uh, after uh, some some weeks in Paris. And by the time he came back, he was no longer the conquering hero. Uh, he was getting a lot of criticism, and Wilson is not close to Clemenceau, the French leader, not particularly close to Lloyd George, and certainly not close to Borden. He's a rather uh, isolated figure, isn't he? I, I don't want to compare him to Mr. Trump, but there's there are some parallels there, aren't there? Well, I don't want to make the comparison either, because for all his limitations, Woodrow Wilson was a great man, and believe me, the limitations don't stop. But um, Mr. Trump, well, no, no, no. Let, let's let's go. Yeah, let's get back to 1919. Did Canadians expect much from from this conference? I mean, you, you've mentioned the general exhaustion of, of of the prime minister, but the country was exhausted and irritated as never before. Um, did Canadians expect something to come out of out of uh, Versailles for us, for Canadians, for Canada? Well, it's the days before opinion polls, so yes. we don't we don't know. But uh, certainly the government time and time again said, and I think had some reason to say, that Canadian public opinion expected that we would be recognized for what we had done. And uh, Borden fought on his own behalf and on behalf of the government. He was also uh, fighting on behalf, uh, fighting for recognition on behalf of the um, Canadian people. He said it time and time again. Uh, however, again, we have to point out that Francophone Canada was thinking other thoughts. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us about the delegation in Paris. Who, who was there accompanying Prime Minister Borden? He wasn't alone. Yeah, it was relatively small. Mm-hmm. The Minister of Trade and Commerce, George Foster, was there. The uh, Minister of Justice, uh, Doherty, was there. But the really striking figure was the very young man... Loring Cheney Christie. Tell us more. Yes. <laughs> Christie was the legal advisor in the Department of External Affairs, the fledgling Department of External Affairs. He was appointed in 1913 at the age of 28. And very quickly, this young lawyer became Borden's foreign policy sidekick. Mm-hmm. He was there throughout the war. And I said earlier that Borden was an imperialist. Well, but he was a very pale imperialist because, as I said, he was more of a Canadian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lauren Christie was also a proud Canadian, but he was a true imperialist uh, in the sense that he thought that the way to express Canada's growing sense of itself was within a closely organized and outward-looking empire. So he would say, what was worth doing in the world was worth doing on a large scale. And so the empire was the large scale, and that was the um, that was the man who was at Borden's elbow throughout the war, and always encouraging Borden to move forward for Canada, but also to move forward for the empire. So is so I get the impression that Borden is a little bit uh, under tension here. He's got his own inclinations, and young Loring Christie is, is pushing him in another? Borden knows his own mind. Yes. <laughs> Later on, you and I will talk about a, a, another uh, foreign policy duo, Mackenzie King and, and Oscar Skelton. In yes. both cases, the prime minister knows that he's in charge, and the advisor knows 
that the prime minister knows that he's in charge. The prime minister remains the boss. Yes. What about, so, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Borden is not there for the whole event. The, the Versailles Peace Conference will go on for, for quite quite a while. The whole peace process will take up to two years. Um, Borden leaves uh, in late winter, early spring? Yes, he leaves in May and goes home at the urging of his colleagues. He'd been gone for a long time. He spent, over the last two or three years of the war, he spent about half of his time in uh, away from Canada. And you, you can't do that. You, you can't do that even these days. But you can certainly not do it in those days when it took a week to sail back and forth. Yes. So you went home for a week, you had to take, uh, or you went away for a week, you had to be away for three weeks. And um, so he was not in touch with his government. He was clearly in charge, um, but he he was out of touch with Canada. His colleagues kept saying, come back, come back, and he finally gave in, not least because Canada was not uh, playing a role in decision-making. The truth is that nobody was playing a dis- role in decision-making except the, the big three, mm-hmm. uh, Clemenceau of France, Lloyd George of Britain, and Woodrow Wilson of the United States. So what did Canada get out of this thing, out of Versailles? We stepped out into the world in a way we never had stepped out into the world before. We sat at the Peace Conference, not with any great power or influence, but we sat as our own being, as our own international personality. We signed the Versailles Peace Treaty, um, which was the the crucial one, the treaty Mm -hmm. with Germany. And we entered the League of Nations, and Borden had to fight for the right to be uh, able to be elected to the council, the board of directors of the League of Nations. So we became, well, it's always delicate. We became, um, in some respects, as as Loring Christie put it, uh, our own international person. But you need to point out that it's in some respects, because the Americans didn't really recognize that we were a real country. The Secretary of State of the United States in one of the sessions of the peace negotiations tried to enumerate the countries that belonged to the self-governing dominions of the British Empire. He forgot to name Canada. And so there was this sense that that we were still an appendage of of the British Empire. And indeed, when we signed the peace treaty, uh, it wasn't Borden, it was the Justice Minister. When, when he signed the peace treaty, he signed in, a, in an indented area under the British signature. The British had already signed for the entire British Empire. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, Canada's signature was superfluous. And that's a problem. In 1919, we are part colony, part imperial partner, and part nation. We still have a long way to go before we're, in any true sense, sovereign. And that's the thing that I talk to my students about mm-hmm. constantly. Um, the defining fact of Canadian history in the early part of our existence as a country is our connection to Britain, which was so, so powerful. And let, let's be blunt about it. Borden was happy with that, was he not? He was. I mean, that satisfied him. It did, as long as we were recognized as increasingly autonomous. Indeed. We didn't like that word independent because that mm-hmm. was an American word. We didn't want a declaration of independence, but we did want to be recognized as 
autonomous. We wanted to be recognized as having status. We wanted to be recognized as having an equal status within the empire. Of course, it wasn't going to be equal. We were never going to be equal to Britain. But we wanted also to extend that into an international status for Canada among the nations of the world. And Paris is part of that work. It's imperfect, but it's part of that work. What's your sense of how the Versailles Peace Treaty and, and the Canadian participation in it, what's your sense of how it's changed over 100 years? Are, are we saying basically what, what they were saying on the, uh, in the days following that signature? Or have historians changed their views about Canada at Versailles over the years? Margaret Macmillan, uh, a Canadian historian who's made an enormous impression far, far beyond Canadian shores, with her book, Paris 1919, which is called in Britain, uh, The Peacemakers, um, is one of a number of historians who who uh, has altered the impression that uh, people had about the Treaty of Versailles, uh, because it was often remembered as a kind of bust, because after all, it was one of the vehicles that Hitler used to rise to power and stay in power. And he spent the 1930s denouncing the Treaty of Versailles and and renouncing it, doing the things that the Treaty of Versailles said he shouldn't do. And there was a certain guilt in, uh, in the Western democracies and certainly in England that uh, maybe the treaty had been too harsh. And so uh, it would be a good thing if um, if we appeased the Germans because we'd been too too difficult with them before. But Margaret Macmillan and other historians have said, well, you know, let's think back. How harsh was the treaty really? I mean, we never occupied Germany. Um, many of the clauses of the Treaty of Versailles were, were, seemed difficult. They were supposed to pay great sums, but they didn't pay great sums. So, She's, she says, well, it's remembered as a failure, and the people who did it are remembered as having messed it up. She wants to say how difficult it was. They met as a kind of United Nations for six months, an extraordinary event. They had maps in front of them. They recast the world. And Borden was part of that. Well, yeah, to some extent. And it was a world in flux. There was a revolution going on right next door, in uh, not quite next door, but very close in Russia, which was going to alter the geography of uh, the geopolitics of, of the rest of the 20th century. So it was complicated, and it was difficult, and they did their best. And that's the Macmillan point of view, and that's increasingly, I think, the historian's point of view about the, the peace conference. Again, it's worth situating ourselves in the context. It's it's a it's before uh, the Versailles Peace Conference that Borden will launch a new expedition to the eastern shores of Russia. Is it not? Yes. Um, another another adventure. Well, another adventure, and one that he was um, that he was reluctant about, and we quickly got out of. But it was all part of that, um, to use the famous Winston Churchill phrase, strangling the uh, the Russian Revolution um, in its cradle. Mm. Um, it didn't it didn't work, of course, and uh, the Russian Revolution became the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, I'd like to finish up, Norman, with our our classic Champlain Society question, and that is about documentation. What is the state of documentation around Borden and the Versailles Peace Conference or Canada generally 
at the Versailles Peace Conference? I mean, are we dealing with the same old documents? Is there something that's out there that uh, needs to be uncovered or that needs to be examined? What's your sense of, of documentation on that whole period and that whole event? I'm struck by the fact that one of my colleagues tells me that um, only a very small percentage of all the documents on the French Revolution have ever been read. So I'm reluctant to say that there isn't a lot out there that uh, that we can that we can find and that we uh, that that might change perceptions. But this is a this is a subject which has been gone over time and time again. Margaret Millen made it a many decade uh, study. Uh, her work is enormously appreciated, and I think the the main contours of documentation and the main contours of interpretation remain pretty much the same among Canadian historians, but also among international historians. The issues that get debated are pretty much the issues that have been debated ever since 1919. But you hope that you will find other things, new documents. Certainly in Canada, it seems to be exhausted. It seems that we know pretty much everything that we should know. We had a wonderful biography of Borden by Robert Craig Brown. Interestingly, the the chapter on Paris is very small, yes. suggesting he didn't find very much mm-hmm. that was new. Uh, Charles Stacy wrote a magnificent chapter on on the Paris Peace Conference in uh, Canada in the Age of Conflict, and and Bob Bothwell has written a, a very fine biography of Lorraine Christie. Mm-hmm. The subject continues to be gone over. Peter Clark in The Locomotive of War reassesses the peace conference in looking at the the broad trend lines of liberalism going back to the 19th century and moving all the way up through the founding of the United Nations. So I think there's a lot of new things to say, but the documentation that he uses is pretty much the documentation that have been that has been used for years and years. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it at that then. And uh, I think those are great suggestions for reading for our listeners who are uh, curious about uh, how Canada uh, behaved at that. How do we describe it? World-changing event of the Versailles Peace Conference. Nice talking to you, Norman. Thank you very much for your time. All the best, Patrice. Thank you. I was speaking with Norman Helmer. He was the editor of the 2013 Champlain Society volume entitled O.D. Skelton, The Work of the World. He's also published a companion biography called O.D. Skelton, A Portrait of Canadian Ambition, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and even a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, and we thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on February 4th, 2019. And it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.